This is Upfront on the Voice of America. My name is Jackson Vungani in Washington. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, in case you forgot, we are still very much in a battle against COVID-19. But the good news is that the great majority of the global population has received the COVID-19 vaccine. However, as vaccine experts say, coverage in many African countries falls far behind the global target of 70% by the end of 2022. The Southern African nation of Zambia, with a population of almost 19 million people, recently announced that it had achieved great success in the number of people vaccinated. This target seemed unattainable. This was especially so given the very low vaccination uptake that was largely driven by highly prevalent myths and misconceptions about the safety and efficacy of COVID-19 vaccinations. That is Dr. Muka Chikuba. She is the country representative of the global public health organization, JSI. She is also the chief of party for USID's Discover Health program. She joins us with more on how Zambia was able to achieve this goal. And in Egypt, as COP27 enters its final week, world leaders and climate change activists from nearly 200 countries continue negotiations on how to cut global warming emissions and provide finance for countries being affected by climate change. Um, my expectations for COP27 mostly would be um, the establishment of or the operationalization of the loss and damage finance facility. Brenda Mwale is a climate change activist and negotiator from Malawi. She's one of the leaders of the organization Green Girls Platform. She joins us from Sham el-Sheikh in Egypt. But as always, let's hear from you, our listeners. This week again, we asked you if you think developed countries have a financial responsibility to pay for the climate change impact on poor countries. This is what you had to say. I'm carrying your patience. Yeah, I think the rest of the world should be paying for the damage they are causing. Cause if I tell you, we are contributing 4% and they are contributing 90, 96%. That means they are, they, there is a high damage they are causing on our property. So they have to, yeah, they have to compensate for, what, for the damages they are causing to us. Cause. My name is Olupot Andrew. And I'm in Kampala, Uganda, Africa. Well, there is no, no uh, say, estimated amount for which they can pay. All they can do is, is to start seeing the dangers and do some affirmative action because there is no amount of money that can compensate for all the damage to people's livelihoods. I'm talking about crops, basically, because mostly of African countries depend on agriculture. Yeah, you know, and there is no amount of money that can compensate to all the flora and fauna loss. My name is again, once again, that is uh, Joseph Tatisio, a South Sudanese born. Of course, uh, it is not all that uh, the, the, the world is supposed to pay us because they are causing us a lot. Uh, it is just that if they, they could find ways of minimizing so that, of, of course, also we are affected with the pollution that is around the globe. Thank you for contributing to the show. As always, we appreciate hearing from you, our listeners. Now, it needs no reminder, but we are still very much in a battle against COVID-19. And according to figures compiled by Johns Hopkins University, since the WHO declared COVID-19 a global pandemic, 
The deadly virus has claimed the lives of over 6 million people, with at least 634 million confirmed cases worldwide. However, public health experts say that there is hope on the horizon, with the World Health Organization announcing this month that there has been a 90% drop in global COVID-19 deaths since February of this year. The WHO director Tedros Ghebreyesus says that this was a cause for optimism. The drop in death is attributed to a number of factors, but most importantly, it has to do with the people that have received the COVID-19 vaccine. And even though vaccine coverage in many African countries falls far behind the global target, some countries, including Zambia, which started its COVID-19 vaccine rollout in April of 2021, have been able to achieve this goal. The Zambian government recently announced that it had reached the milestone by fully vaccinating 70% of its population. So how did Zambia do it in the face of vaccine shortages and disinformation about the vaccine? And for that, I'm joined from Lusaka, Zambia by Dr. Moka Chikuba. She's the country representative for the public health organization JSI and the chief of party for USID's Discover Health program. So, uh, Dr. Muka, life is uh, seemingly returning to normal in many parts of Africa, including in Zambia. Uh, And so before we get to how you were able to increase the COVID-19 vaccination rates in the country, I wanted to ask, what was the impact of COVID on Zambia as compared to its neighbors in the region? You know, the impact of COVID, especially during the early waves, was really, really significant. Uh, We had so many uh, uh, people who were infected at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Uh, We had lockdowns. Our health system was failing to cope. Uh, We are a country with um, uh, a health workforce that was at 46% during the early waves of COVID-19. Uh, 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 the COVID-19 pandemic and the health system was failing to cope because it was already overstretched by the time we, the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic hit. So we had so many health workers who were sick and then because the health system was, was overstretched with so few health workers, uh, the, the system was failing to cope with a number of clients and patients who were very critically ill with COVID-19. So not only were, was the health system failing to cope, uh, uh, people's livelihoods were affected. They were not able to go out to work and earn a living. We are a developing country with a lot of people living on the margin, and it was really, really difficult, both on the health system, on the household level, and on the economy. It was a really, really bad impact uh, during the first waves. But like many other countries, once the vaccination program started and we started vaccinating our people, we began to see some relief Mm. from some of the severe, severe impact at the beginning of the pandemic. Now, Zambia's Ministry of Health recently achieved its goal of uh, getting to up to 70% of the nation's eligible population fully vaccinated against COVID-19. How was it able to achieve this milestone? So, one year ago, in October 2021, when the president of Zambia, two months after he was elected into office, 
announced the target of fully vaccinating 70% of the eligible population, the coverage, fully vaccinated coverage, stood at 3.5%. To many of us, this target seemed unattainable. This was especially so given the very low vaccination uptake that was largely driven by highly prevalent myths and misconceptions about the safety and efficacy of COVID-19 vaccinations. So how did Zambia accomplish the turnaround? It took accepting with humility that we as health experts did not have all the answers in this, in this case and reaching out with respect to our communities and the Zambian people to obtain their input, acceptance and buy-in and their participation in the vaccination effort. Firstly, we went to the Zambian people and got their input to design tailored COVID-19 messages that resonated with them to help change mindsets and behavior about COVID-19 vaccination. The key message that came out for us in Zambia was get vaccinated, protect Zambia, really speaking to the patriotism that we were trying to, 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 to energize, to get people vaccinated. But that message came from them. And that became our campaign slogan. We then went all out to share timely and accurate information with the people, including on one-on-one -on -one basis, to encourage them to get vaccinated for themselves and for their families. But we did so respecting personal choices. Some people just didn't want to be vaccinated and we respected some of those personal choices and did not coerce anyone. Mm. Importantly, yeah. we, were, we were ready to administer the vaccine upon acceptance. Please go ahead. Okay. So, and, and I just wanted to go back a little bit to that. Uh, there was some pushback in in many parts of the continent against the vaccines, uh, including here in, the, in America, actually, uh, mostly due to misinformation or disinformation. How, was, uh, how were you able to counter that misinformation? When we designed the messaging, Jackson, we, 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 we did that by doing human-centered, rapid human-centered design studies. We went to the Zambians and talked to them to find out what their issues were and then we designed our messaging to address their issues. But we, we designed those messages in language that resonated with them. I can design a message sitting in my office here as a project director. If I take it to the market, a busy African market, and I start trying to encourage people using my message, they're not going to listen to me. So we went down to the people, Jackson, and used language that they understand and identify with and designed our messaging around what resonated with them, but basing it on science. That's what we did. Mm. Now, in, in your experience, uh, how are people's willingness to get a, a COVID-19 vaccine influenced by the attitudes of other members of their household? And this is one of the, 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 the areas that is fascinating. Um, you know, because we came from a really severe, the second wave for us and the third waves were brutal. People were dying. Uh, we didn't have oxygen in our hospitals. We had, we had a shortage of oxygen. And people saw their family members die. So to some degree, 
People wanted to protect themselves, they wanted to protect their loved ones, and they wanted to protect the country. But they also wanted to see what the impact would be if others were vaccinated. Some of them waited for other family members to be vaccinated, and then they got convinced from the example of family members, not only family members. What we did was uh, we recognized the importance of harnessing influence to get best results. We involved influential opinion leaders like traditional leaders, civic leaders, religious leaders, and other leaders like musicians, performance artists, to support our community health workers who were really the key people who went into the communities. But influential opinion leaders supported our community health workers in rallying eligible populations to get vaccinated. Uh, for example, if a popular musician got vaccinated, masses followed suit and got vaccinated too. So it wasn't just at the family level with family members influencing each other, but also using influential opinion leaders to help us rally the masses around vaccination. So it was a, a multi-pronged uh, approach that also harnessed influence apart from just a one-on-one within families. Right, right. In case you're just joining us, this is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vongani. We are chatting with Dr. Mokachi Kuba. She is the country representative for the public health organization, JSI. She's also chief of party for USID's Discover Health program. She says that even though initially there was low uptake of the vaccine due to supply challenges, and that plus the misinformation and unfounded rumors about the vaccine, the government of Zambia was able to deploy a number of successful community-led strategies to get as many people vaccinated all around the country. And uh, before I let you go, Dr. Muka, there, there remains a, a large disparity in the share of people vaccinated against COVID-19 when you compare low-income and high-income countries. Uh, I read some reports that say that as of early this year, I know we're, we're coming to the end of 2022, but as early of this year, uh, over 80% of the population in high, uh, in developed countries were vaccinated compared to say about 15% in, in low income countries. How, how do we close that gap? So, you know, Jackson, that's a really good question. What we found out was that it's not vaccine hesitancy that is uh, 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 the biggest barrier to vaccine vaccination in some of the low-income countries. Zambia was at 3.5%. And when we found out what the barriers were, we tried to close those barriers. One of the biggest barriers was access. We increase vaccine access to vaccines by taking COVID-19 vaccination to where people are through outreach. A team of our trusted foot soldiers, the Zambian community health workers and the vaccine providers seamlessly deliver clear information and vaccine access, often right to families' doorsteps, eliminating both the barriers of misinformation and the overwhelming cost of travel. Hundreds of thousands of trained community health workers who are truly the heroes of this success in Zambia found out to generate demand while accompanying vaccination teams provided access to the vaccines in markets, in bus stops, in schools, 
in places of worship, in urban neighborhoods, and in rural villages. Over the past one year, they braved the heat. They waved, they waded through rivers to reach beneficiaries and help to make sense of our high-density unplanned settlements where there are no street names and no house numbers. But they are of the community. They come from those communities. They know how to reach our people. We would have been lost without them. So we took the vaccines to where people are. Now, let me just mention, Jackson, that uh, a vaccine program that doesn't wait for people to come to the health facility, that takes vaccine to where people are, is actually quite expensive because you are funding out, you are taking groups of workers and you are, you're, 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 you're taking vaccine to where people are. But if we wanted to turn the tide around, we, we needed to do this. So that's what we did. We took vaccines to where people are because some people just are so unreached by the health system that it was too expensive for them to travel to our health facilities to get vaccinated. Dr. Muka, um, for many uh, in across the continent, uh, 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 public health officials, they say that, you know, when, when, when COVID hit, it found health systems that were not able to respond to the task at hand. Uh, my question to you, based on some of the lessons you've learned in the last two, two years during this pandemic, two and a half years during this pandemic, how do you strengthen these health systems in ways that we can cope with the next pandemic? That's a very, very good question. We are actually facing that challenge in Zambia. We, like I said, we are using the outreach model for taking vaccines to where people are. But when you do that, you are using healthcare workers who are responsible for delivering other essential services, childhood immunizations, HIV treatment, TB treatment, delivery services. So we already had a health system that was only 46% staffed. So if you took out those 46% of the establishment to do your outreach, you will collapse the rest of the health system. And that's what many countries are, are, are facing. We were lucky in Zambia. We had an opportunity that we capitalized on. We had a number of out-of-work healthcare workers who were not yet employed, and we went to the market and got those, some of those, to help us deliver vaccination services. Without the out-of-work healthcare workers, we would have found it very, very difficult to do COVID-19 vaccination and also deliver essential health services. We are also lucky in the sense that we've had a number of years of PEPFAR and USAID investment that led to strengthening of some of the health system components, including supply chain, laboratory services, and we could leverage those uh, 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 parts of the system to respond to COVID-19. But the biggest issue was just bodies to deliver the vaccine. And if we are going to be prepared to respond to the next public health emergency, I think countries have to start to staff up 
and make sure that they have the health workers to respond to public health emergencies. They have the lab system to manage any future pandemics, the supply chain system to deliver vaccines and other medical supplies where they are required. So I think many countries uh, 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 really have to look critically at all components of the health system and work to strengthen them. Uh, you know, the president said it best when he closed our event the other day, and he really appealed to the Zambian people and Zambia supporters to channel the spirit they have shown in the COVID-19 vaccination effort and turn up in their spheres of operation and influence to be better prepared for the next emergency. Everyone recognizes that without strengthening health systems, uh, this interconnected global village uh, cannot respond effectively to public health emergencies. That was Dr. Moka Chikuba. She's the country representative for the public health organization, JSI, and the chief of party for USID's Discover Health program. She joined us from Lusaka, Zambia. Voice of America. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. No, because what they are doing, also for us, we benefit from it. Like the factories, our people go and work in it, and we get something to, to, to maintain us. That's what I can say. Because they shouldn't pay us, because all of us we are benefiting, though we are affected, but also we are, ben- we are benefiting something out of it. Bruno is my name, and I'm a South Sudanese. Uh, yeah, I think the outsiders should be paying the Africans for polluting the world, because this earth belongs to us all. It's not only theirs. Since they are the ones who are contributing most of the destruction of the world, they should, of course, cons- uh, pay, pay Africans for that. That's what I think. Definitely, they have to pay us. They are the ones who have destroyed our environment. They always, they, um, during colonial eras, they took away our minerals, everything. Now they are emitting em- those bad vision to Africa. So we are actually we are observers. Look at the old vehicles on the world. For that, we actually a dumping what 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 they dump causes a environmental. So those guys they should pay us. Actually, we have even to punish them, punish them and deport them to God. They are the one who are doing harm to this world, not we Africans. Welcome back. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. Now, as COP27, that is the big climate conference enters its final week, climate change negotiators are optimistic that a deal on loss and damage can be reached this week, that is despite disagreements on who should pay for destruction caused by climate change. And as we discussed on the show last week, the issue of loss and damage has been top on the agenda, with many African negotiators at the conference raising the issue of the need of developed countries to compensate developing countries for the damage created by climate change. And from the sidelines of the conference, I'm joined by Brenda Mwale, a climate change activist and negotiator from Malawi. 
Molly is Chief Operations Officer at Green Girls Platform, a woman-led initiative that ensures that girls' experiences and voices are part of the conversation on climate change and climate justice. I started off by asking Brenda what her expectations were as she was engaging in negotiations at this year's COP27. Um, my expectations for COP27 mostly would be um, the establishment of or the operationalization of the loss and damage finance facility. I understand that uh, during the opening plenary on the 6th, the um, agenda item for establishment of the loss and damage finance facility was adopted and it is now under the uh, climate finance agenda as a subtopic there. And what I'm looking forward is that um, like seeing countries making commitments, not just commitments, but then um, actually implementing the commitments that they've already um, that are that they are already making. And at the very same time, also I really also want to see that um, the operationalization of this um, loss and damage facility should be in a way that is transparent and also um, easy for local communities to have access to the funds and resources because the whole essence of having this uh, loss and damage fund uh, facility is so that um, grassroots, like so that the, the resources or the funding can be utilized at grassroots level and then it doesn't really make sense to have like a very complex um way which limits a lot of uh grassroots level organization to have access to those funds and then like the only organization that might end up having access to those uh, resources are like organizations that are not even working on ground and limiting these uh like vulnerable communities or organizations that are working in vulnerable communities to have access to these funds. So basically, that's what I'm looking forward to. A recent report said that in Malawi, the climate crisis is already triggering more erratic and extreme weather that results in chronic water, food, and financial insecurity for millions of people. Brenda says that the majority of them are women. So for Malawi, Malawi has been highly impacted by the impacts of climate change. I'll take us back to uh, 2019 when we were hit by Cyclone Idai. Cyclone Idai affected Malawi, um, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe. And in Malawi, there was like um, like a lot of people were like um, impacted, like more almost like 200,000 plus households were like affected, were displaced, we had lives lost and we had um, like the impact on, on like the impacts on infrastructure and for example loss, um, even uh, it affected crop yield and at the very same time also this year uh, in 2022 we've been hit by second Anna and second Kombe and this has impacted like about 200 135,000 households and um, 100 plus thousand children were like they were they stayed out of school because now either the schools were being used as as camps or 
they there was like um there was no access for like the kids to to be able to access schools and at the very same time i've seen like um malawi this year has registered a high increase of cholera cases that the country has never seen in the past eight to ten years which is something that okay they're like direct impacts like okay low yields and and that but then they will also have like indirect uh, impacts for example um like children being privileged from having access to education or um increase in malnutrition cases or increase in cholera cases which are in like they, they they really like people don't really see like the connection but these are like indirect impacts of um climate change and right now for example we're also uh, experiencing um prolonged load shedding uh breakouts because one of our power plants got washed away by by the floods so you can actually see that the country hasn't really recovered from the impacts that cyclone Idai brought in 2019 and this year have already been hit by two two cyclones which shows how intensive um this whole situation is taking a toll on on a country like malawi that was brenda mwale a climate change activist and negotiator from malawi she joined me from shamal sheikh in egypt and that's it for this episode of Upfront on the Voice of America. Many thanks to all of you, our listeners, our guests, and correspondents from around the continent. For more current news and analysis, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook and on Instagram at VOA Upfront. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.